It really is a joy to be here with all of you. I've heard really good things about this church from the folks at Church of the Resurrection who've had the pleasure of worshiping here. This is my first time visiting here, and when I walked in, I immediately saw that I had something in common with, gosh, maybe the majority of people here. Uh, I, I have the dubious honor of being part of the generation dubbed the Millennials. Uh, it, it represents people from roughly age 20 to 30-something, and the thing you need to know about millennials is that people love writing articles about them. How many of you have seen an article or a book about millennials explaining them and so forth? Right, uh, we are apparently narcissistic, uh, entitled, we have uh, lousy work habits, people aren't sure if we'll ever move out of our parents' basement. There are all these stereotypes that people have about millennials. But occasionally, I will read an article that I say, yeah, that, that, actually, that actually clicks with me. I, I saw one recently that talked about millennials wanting to be part of something bigger than themselves. And I thought, yeah, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. And then I thought, wait a minute, he's cheating. That's not something about millennials. I think that's just about human persons right? Like, what culture ever existed that didn't have a place for people to connect with traditions that bind them to something greater than themselves? Whether it's a national culture or a family culture or a school culture, we all have these experiences that we seek to bring us into communion with something. I'll give you an example. When I went to college for the first time, I was a freshman, and uh, I, I went to freshman orientation, and at my school, everybody kept telling me, you have to join freshman choir. And I said, really? Freshman choir? I'm not a musician of any sort. And they said, yes, you have to join freshman choir. Everyone's going to do it. You got to do it. You don't want to miss out. So I signed up for freshman choir. Turns out it was just a one-time gig. You stand up on stage, you rehearse these two songs that then you're supposed to perform for the student body. So there we are, the night of our performance, and we stand up on stage. It takes place in the chapel at our school, and the curtains were closed, and all of a sudden, it hit me. This is a hazing ritual, isn't it? Like, why else? How else could they get a bunch of freshmen up on stage? I should not have worn my nice clothes. There are going to be tomatoes. I'm sure of it. Well, no time to do anything at that point. The curtains began to open, and suddenly, pandemonium broke loose. I had never seen anything like this. People were shouting and yelling and cheering. There were foghorns. There were people yelling chants, we love freshmen, boom, 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 boom. It was incredible. I mean, there were, there were big signs welcoming us. I felt so good. And it kept going and going. About 15 minutes in, the, the director of student activities tried to get everybody to calm down, and they just joined in another chant. <sighs> I felt like I belonged there. About 30 minutes later, everything settled down, and finally we sang our song, but we sang it with the passion and enthusiasm of someone who belonged. I felt so welcome. But here's a problem with traditions. They have a way of changing over time, of evolving. Sometimes people forget the reason for them. A 
few years after I graduated from college, I heard a rumor that they were talking, the administration was talking about canceling this event of freshman welcome. I couldn't believe it. This was such a meaningful thing to me. I couldn't believe that they would cancel this. So I actually, I cared enough about this. I found out one of the administrators who was wanting to pull the plug, and I got in touch with him. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, Kevin, freshman welcome is not the same thing it was when you went here. You see, apparently, each year, the student body tried to outdo what happened the previous year. Uh, the tradition actually started with a like, one-minute standing ovation, and it evolved from there. And so the costumes got a little more mm, elaborate, maybe. Um, the, the, big, the big crowd of people dancing in the middle of the, the, of the auditorium and cheering became something of a mosh pit. People started incorporating body paint, which would be fine, except then they started running up on stage while the freshmen were wearing their Sunday best, ready to sing. And freshmen started complaining. They were no longer using words like welcome to ex describe their experience. They were using words like scarred. So understandably, the time came to revamp that tradition. This was the problem that Paul was addressing in his letter to the Corinthians. He was addressing a church that had more or less forgotten why they gathered together for one of the most important traditions in the Christian life. It's not just one of those traditions. We have a lot of traditions in Christianity. We have things like candles and, and funny robes and, and motions that we do that have developed over time, and they're meaningful and they're important. But this was a tradition that was introduced by Jesus himself on the night he was betrayed. And it was a tradition that they could not afford to lose. So what was the problem that the Corinthian church had? The problem was not an issue of historical recall. It's not that they were in danger of forgetting that Jesus had died for their sins. That wasn't the issue. When you read 1 Corinthians as a whole, you get the sense that they are forgetting not the historical reference, but the present implications of the Eucharist. They knew what the Eucharist was for, but they didn't know what the Eucharist is for now, today. And this is not a danger unique to the Corinthian church. I grew up in the church, and I have to say that for most of my Christian life, I could tell you what the Eucharist meant, but I'm not sure I could have communicated why it mattered today in the present, why we do it so often. Well, tonight is Maundy Thursday. It's a commemoration of the night that Jesus instituted the Eucharist. So it's appropriate for us to ask, what is the Eucharist for? What does it mean for today? What happens when we come to the table? Well, first of all, obviously, it's a memorial meal. This was Throughout our, our readings today, even the, the reading in 1 Corinthians says it right out. It says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial meal. Even the very first Eucharist, Jesus was gathering his, his disciples together for what was called the Passover. It was a Passover meal. And the Passover was a memorial meal intended to help people remember God's saving deeds when he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And Jesus took the traditions that were a part of this meal, and he redirected them to himself. There was a tradition of breaking bread and dividing it among the people participating in the meal. And he said, this is my body. There was a tradition of passing around cups of wine. And uh, at least today, they represent different aspects of, Jesus, of God's saving work for the Jews. 
Jesus redirected this to himself. He said, no longer will the defining moment of salvation be delivery from Egypt. It will be when I give up my body to be broken by death for you. And I give up my blood to be poured out for your atonement. That will be the defining moment. And you will continue to practice this meal together in remembrance of me. So it is a memorial. But when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that Paul wants them to understand that it's more than just a memorial, more than just something we remember. Paul uses a Greek word, koinonia, to describe what happens at the Lord's table. It can be translated communion or in more normal English, participation. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 puts it this way. I'm just going to flip a page back. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You want to participate in something bigger than yourself? Is that something that you desire? It doesn't get bigger than this. The Eucharist is not just participation in an ancient tradition. It's a participation in a monumental event. Nothing less than the saving death of Jesus Christ. And this is what I want to explore together tonight. The fullness of what is happening when we come to the table together. I want to break it down for us. I'm going to summarize it, okay? I'm going to say that at the Eucharist, our bodies participate in Jesus' broken body as part of his unified body. Now, if that sounds a little confusing, it's okay. We're going we're gonna to break that down bit by bit. I even have some hand motions for you. If you are not too cool for hand motions, or if you're willing to throw me a bone as a visitor, and you don't want, to feel, want me to feel bad, you can do this with me. Watch. Our bodies participate with Jesus' broken body as part of his unified body. That's where we're going. So first, I want to talk about our bodies. It's kind of awkward to say that. Let's talk about our bodies. It reminds me of like junior high gym class or something like that. I, I think part of why it's awkward is our culture doesn't really know what to do with bodies. I think we're kind of confused. Like on one hand, it's like we glorify the body. It's like this sacred thing, my body, my choice. Nobody can tell me what to do with my body. We celebrate it in our music. I think of songs by Ed Sheeran and, and so forth, right? And the, the, the body is this glorious thing that people revel in. But then on the other hand, people are just giving their bodies away. Folks consume one another's bodies. We, we treat bodies like they don't really matter. And I, I, I think that a lot of times in our culture, we don't stop to think what our bodies are for. What's the purpose of a body? It's not something we have to ask. We just take our bodies for granted. We've always had a body. Well, why does it matter what it's for? Well, it does matter, because we have bodies for a purpose. And, and there's probably a lot of answers to the question, what is our body for? But I'll tell you one of them. One critical function of our bodies is that they enable us to participate in the world around us. They let us take in experiences, to experience the pleasure of a good steak, the beauty of a sunset. These are enabled by our bodies. They also let us express ourselves in the world to make our presence known. They let us influence the world around us. They're the reason we can have relationships. It's why I can see you and you can see me and I can come over and give you a hug. 
occasionally. It's also the reason we can smell one another, uh, which is also uh, part of having relationships that maybe aren't so pleasant. But the good and the bad, the pleasant and the unpleasant, our bodies make it possible for us to be in relationship with each other, to engage one another. And that's why it is so important that although Jesus very well could have just left us with the words of Scripture, He could have left us with the inspired word of God telling us that he lived and died and rose again, but he didn't just leave us with that. He left us with something that engages our body, all five of our senses. We look at the table and we can see the bread and the wine. We hear the very words that he spoke to his disciples. We feel the bread in our hands. We taste it in our mouths. We smell the wine as we tip back the cup. It's this bodily participation. God likes to interact with his creatures through our senses, through our bodies. He likes matter. He invented it. We have a saying that we like to say at our church, maybe you've heard it here, that matter matters. God invented matter, and he likes to use it to communicate himself so often. We see it so much in scripture that we have a special word for it. We call it a sacrament. When God uses something visible and tangible to express a spiritual reality. And that is what we are engaging in when we come to the table. A spiritual reality that we can experience with our bodies. So what is that spiritual reality? Well, remember what we said at the beginning. We said at the Eucharist, our bodies participate with Jesus' broken body together with his unified body. I want to read verses, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 25 again. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's rather incredible that Jesus would say that his body is for us. His body is for us. How is that? Well, if you think about it, Jesus is the only person in the history of the entire world to have ever made a conscious decision to have a body. We were all just kind of born with our bodies, right? We, 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 we take it for granted. But Jesus didn't start off with a body. He was the pre-existing eternal son of God. Through him, all things were made, and apart from him, nothing was made that was made. He invented bodies. They were not essential to his nature, but he chose to take one on, to take on our humanity. Why? Well, a lot of early Christians, church fathers, took note that there was something that God needed to do if he wanted to save us that he couldn't do. You're like, what? No, you can't say that. There's nothing God can't do. He's omnipotent. Well, they make the observation that someone who is immortal and eternal cannot die. But Jesus knew that if he wanted to take upon himself the curse of death, he would need to take upon himself our mortal bodies so that he could conquer death by rising again, allowing us to share in his resurrection. He didn't have to take on a body. His body was fundamentally for us. He took it on for us. That's why he came and he offers this body to us in the Eucharist. 
I think I need to comment on that statement. Those simple words of this is my body and this is my blood have generated a lot of controversy, to put it mildly, in the history of the church. Um, it started from the very beginning, actually. When Jesus first brought it up in John chapter 6, he really freaked out his disciples. He started talking about, about them eating his, his flesh and drinking his blood, and my body is real food, and my blood is real drink. And, and it said that, they, that some, many of his disciples, it said, said, this is hard teaching, and they left. They couldn't take it. It wasn't any better in the early church. Uh, in the early church, the pagan neighbors of the Christians called them cannibals because they kept talking about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus, and it was weird. So understandably, some Christians have tried to kind of back off from that a little bit. There are attempts to kind of explain away Jesus' presence at the Eucharist, to say that it's a memorial, but it's just a memorial. There's no sense in which Jesus is there with us. That's one approach that some Christians have tried to take. Other Christians have gone on the other extreme, and they want to have these elaborate explanations about the Aristotelian means by which the body and the blood are the, the, the bread and wine become body and blood, and they're no longer bread and wine, and they look like body and blood, but, they, but they're not, and they, they just have the, the accidents of these things uh, in this whole elaborate system called transubstantiation. That's, that's the technical term. As, as Anglicans, we, we try to stay away from both of these extremes. But we want to take Jesus at his word. We want to take Jesus at his word that in some way, and we disagree, Anglican thinkers disagree on specifics, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to create more controversy than there already is. But in some way that the Bible doesn't fully explain to us, when we participate at the table, we are nourished not just by bread and wine, but by Jesus himself. Why does this matter? Because when we participate in the Eucharist, we're not just declaring something that happened 2,000 years ago, although we are doing that. We are actually participating in that death. It's the difference between reading a book about swimming and plunging into the deep end. It's the difference between carrying a photo of your loved one in your wallet and standing at the, at the altar and saying, I do. It's powerful. When we participate and partake of the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, Jesus' sacrifice ceases to be an abstract idea. It becomes part of our bodily experience. We are reliving this event with him. Or maybe I should say re-dying this event with him. And Paul says something beautiful about sharing in Jesus' death. He says in Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the promise of the Eucharist. In context, that's the promise of baptism too. You can think of every single Eucharist as a renewal of our baptism, complete with the promise that we have shared in the death of Christ so that we might also share in his resurrection. Or if you think about it from the flip side, he shared in our humanity and gave his body for us so that we might have the hope of sharing in his divinity so that when this body dies, it doesn't stay dead. That is the promise of the Eucharist. So for us, it's not a sad event. I've been to communion services where it's a really depressing event. It's not a sad event for us. Eucharist means thanksgiving. That's where we get it from. It comes from when Jesus took the bread and gave thanks. It's thanksgiving, and we are so thankful. 
for this participation we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we can't quite stop there. There's a little bit more to it. And to understand this, we need to read on in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to start at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judgment. I was just talking about hope and thanksgiving. Where does the judgment come in? Actually, this, this passage has created like a, a crisis of conscience for a lot of Christians. Uh, I, I've, I've known Christians who actually very, only very occasionally come forward or receive communion because they're worried that, that maybe they're not doing it in a holy enough way. Maybe they're not worthy enough. And so we really need to break down what this means here. There's a clue in verse 29. It says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body... Wait a minute, where's the blood? Whoever eats and drinks... We've got eating and drinking. You would think there would be body and blood. But it just says whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body. I think this is because, and I think if you read 1 Corinthians and you see the way Paul talks about the body, you'll see this. This is because what Paul's talking about here is not the broken body at the table. He's saying discerning the body. Our bodies participate in Jesus' broken body as his unified body. I love the layout of this building. I love that you can sit on this side and actually see your brothers and sisters on the other side, and vice versa. It's beautiful because this is what Paul is saying that the Corinthians are not doing. They're not seeing each other. They're not seeing that God has brought them together as part of a body, together. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, he explains that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's like the Pauline version of you are what you eat. Because we all are united with Jesus in his body, that makes us part of that body together. Paul's concern for the Corinthian church was that they were in grave danger of falling into the hypocrisy of thinking that they could participate in the broken body of Jesus while ignoring the unified body of Jesus. They were coming to the Lord's Supper, and at that time, it was customary to have kind of a meal with communion. And so people were bringing their own meals, and, they, and you'd have these wealthy people who had this big feast, and they'd sit down with all their food, and they'd gorge themselves and get a little tipsy while their less wealthy brothers and sisters are going hungry on the other side. They were sitting together in this room, but it's like they couldn't see each other. Brothers and sisters, I worry that that can very easily happen to us. Yes, even sitting around a room like this with a group this size, we can sit across from each other and not even see that we're there. I remember uh, a church that I was a part of years ago um, had a group of young adults, millennials, who would uh, 
have lunch together after church every Sunday. It was kind of our way of hanging out, um, getting to know each other a little bit better. We'd always pick a place to eat. Uh, it was a group of young professionals, college students with a little spending money. And so we'd go out to eat every Sunday after church. And one day, God brought somebody into our community who's a little different from us. There were some cultural differences, some social differences, and he shows up at our little church. And so being the friendly people that we are, we invite him to lunch. And he's very happy about that. He says, I'd love to go, um, but I, I don't have any money. And of course, being the friendly people that we are, we said, all right, come on. I've got this one. I'll spot you. So he comes with us. And then the next Sunday, he came again. And it was great. And we invited him out to lunch. We figured he didn't have his wallet last time. But when he, we got to the restaurant, he whispered over to me and he said, I only have $2. And I could tell he didn't want people to know. He said, could you spot me? And then it hit me. We had created a culture in our church where the only way that somebody could form a deep relationship with somebody in, in our young adult group was to have some pocket money to be able to go to a restaurant. And we realized that we couldn't do this. We couldn't, we couldn't create that kind of culture where we're, where we're dividing ourselves from the body of Christ, this brother whom God had given to us. And so we realized that for cheaper than eating out, we could go out and we could buy pasta and we could buy some sauce and we could buy some bread and we could go to somebody's house or at times we used the church kitchen and we could cook a meal together. And my friend George, not his real name, could come and he could help cook the meal. And he could sit with us around the table and not feel like he's, he's having to ask us for something every week. We needed to create a community where we could really sit around the table and see each other and be friends with one another as the body of Christ together without these barriers. But it's so hard. There are a lot of natural barriers in our society. Our churches tend to be segregated across social economic lines, education lines, racial lines, cultural lines. But every once in a while, God gives us the blessed grace of bringing somebody into our lives who is different from us, bringing someone into my life who maybe I otherwise wouldn't get along with, but because they are part of the body of Christ, God calls me to embrace them as a brother, as a sister. Who is God calling you to open your eyes and see? Is there someone in your life who's a nuisance? Who maybe wants to be friends with you more than you want to be friends with them? Open your eyes. See the body of Christ. Is there someone in your community who's a target of gossip? And it's a lot easier to participate in that than it is to participate in a friendship with that person. If you're coming to the table together, you're participating with them as God's unified body. Is there someone of a different socioeconomic class than you? Someone who thinks they're better than you? Someone who thinks that you're better than them? Someone who thinks that you're not worth their time. Someone who you think is not worth your time. Who is it? Who is God calling you to? Open your eyes. 
This is the reason for Monday Thursday. It's not just about the table, although it is about the table. There's something else that happened on Monday Thursday. The word Monday comes from the word where we get mandate. Because Jesus gave a command to his disciples on that night. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. And he showed them what that love looked like by kneeling down, taking the form of a servant, and washing their feet, doing something that the lowest slave wouldn't do in that culture. This is our opportunity to follow in his footsteps tonight, to with our bodies tangibly show our love by washing the body of a brother or a sister. And I want to encourage you not to waste this opportunity. Don't just go through the motions. It's going to be awkward at first if you've never done this. As soon as you get over the awkwardness, I want you to pray a prayer. You can pray it silently to yourself. Ask God to open your eyes to his body. Pray this prayer as we wash one another's feet. And in this way, we'll prepare our hearts together to receive Jesus' broken body as his unified body. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.